But first, it's time for our regular UK commentator and columnist for the Eye newspaper, Be Upstanding for Ian Dunt. Welcome back, Ian. Thank you. Rich Ritchie has uh, been in the top job for three weeks now. Would you be kind enough to mark his homework, particularly on the diplomatic front? It's quite hard at this early stage. He's, he, his, his attempt is essentially a PR attempt, and this is what we would have expected from him. I mean, this is a man that was famous as Chancellor for you know trying to brand everything with his signature on videos online, on images online. And it's a very similar approach that you see when he engages in international affairs. So his team put out a photo of him sort of staring in this very aggressive way at the Russians during uh, during the recent summit. Um, and so it's predominantly operating on that rather superficial level. However, behind the scenes, there's some slightly more interesting material. So, for instance, he's going to sign off today uh, with Narendra Modi, the Indian prime minister, on a decision to make 3,000 visas available to sort of degree-educated Indian nationals between 18 and 30 to work in the UK for up to 24 months. It's pretty small, just 3,000, but it's quite an interesting move because it shows at least a glimmer of a pragmatic assessment of where the British economy is, that if you want to trade deal with India, the main ask from India is going to be freedom of movement. It's just easing the way for people uh, to engage on their immigration rights. So on that basis, you kind of get a, a bit of an appeal. You get the quite bland sort of PR front that he puts out. And then behind the scenes, you get this fairly non-ideological, quite pragmatic, very, very pro-business kind of George Osborne Toryism. And that at the moment, we haven't got much to work with, but that at the moment seems to be the appraisal that we can make. And will he secure a trade deal as a consequence? Yeah, he will. I mean, I, I've got to give him a bit of credit here. So one of the main weaknesses that Britain has had in its trade deal since Brexit is that it's desperate for them. And the last thing you want when you're going into a trade negotiation is to be desperate because the other side can just sit and wait. As soon as you have a problem, as soon as you have a blockage, which you always do, they'll go, OK, fine, so we'll just sit and wait. The British uh, position was very different. It was the trade deals, even though they add up to absolutely nothing. I mean, the Australian trade deal with the UK was 0.02% increase in GDP per year after it had bedded in for 15 years. But the, you but should have, Ian, you didn't see the dancing in the streets here. We were absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, riotlessly happy. I can only imagine the national euphoria that greeted it. But I mean, this is the, this is the main vulnerability that you impose on yourself. If you create a political narrative, as Britain did, that said, you know, we must have trade deals to show that Brexit works, regardless of the economics, you have then basically created your opponent's leverage against you. And that's indeed the way that it turned out with New Zealand, with Australia and countless other examples um, of pretty, you know, pretty average to poor trade deals. Sunak, to his credit, is saying, no, hang on a minute, we're going to take our time with this. He knows that he's got real dangers with the Indian deal. It's worth quite a bit, but it opens up the anti-immigrant argument with his own party, which will be expressed by Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary. Um, which will be very, very hard on any movement on immigration. So you can see him taking a bit more time and being a little bit more pragmatic about it. Ian, love also seems to be blossoming across the English Channel between uh, Rich Rishi and Emmanuel Macron. 
Yes, and I have to say again, pathetically, I am grateful for it as a sort of bona fide lover of of the relationship between England, uh, between Britain and France. All the best things happen when the two countries are not at each other's throats and actually recognizing their sort of deep historic relationship. And actually, there's been what would in any other time be considered completely boilerplate diplomatic statements put out, you know, by Rishi Sunak saying they're friends, they're allies, working together on the boats crisis. Um, now, this should be unremarkable, but actually it comes after about six to seven years of increasingly tub-thumping, banal, de- semi-deranged rhetoric against France from Boris Johnson, from Liz Truss, from Theresa May. I mean, Liz Truss, obviously the absolute bottom of the dial, where she said she couldn't tell whether France was a friend or a foe of the UK. Um, I mean, quite deranged levels of rhetoric there. So nevertheless, there's been a slight improvement now. And it is pathetic to watch us just sort of, you know, basically to watch all the centrists all over Britain just suddenly go, oh, thank God. Thank God that they're talking as if they're not actual lunatics and that there's some sort of concrete uh, proposals that are coming out of the relationship. Meanwhile, things aren't looking too hot on the economic front. And I understand that after 12 years of austerity, you're about to have austerity on austerity. Yes, exactly. So tomorrow we get the autumn statement. Um and the sort of the real irony here is that the first time we did austerity, it was sold by George Osborne as this has to happen or else, you know, you'll get sort of flight from the bond markets and you'll see investors won't take Britain seriously. There was absolutely zero evidence that that was the case when this was first initiated. And in fact, what it did was turn the recession into something that was much more brutal and painful than it needed to be. It was ideological and it was economically illiterate. Now, the very same government has behaved in such a crazed way that those things actually did take place, that there was panic in the bond markets and investors did start to stay away from Britain. So the government now has to demonstrate that it does have some sort of medium term plan for paying down its debt. And that leads us into, you guessed it, like another round of austerity, except that this time there is nothing left to cut. There was an interview with um, with Rishi Sunak over the weekend where he was asked by a journalist, can you just tell me one public service, police, education, health, anything that is working properly at the moment? And he was unable to answer the question. Because wherever you look across the policy portfolio, it is absolute carnage. I mean, you look at NHS waiting lists, you look at education, you look at policing, you you look at crime. I mean, essentially, we've reached a point where we've sort of de facto decriminalized burglary, you know, drug use, any, any number of things you look at, because there simply isn't the policing numbers to keep track of it. So on that basis, we're now going to have another round of, for the next three years, spending decisions on departments, which will cut that down beyond the bone until we start threatening the actual structure of British social life. Well, talking about bones reminds me of chickens. And let me ask you this, are the Brexit chickens coming home to roost? They very much are. And what's incredible now is is to watch, it's actually become a bit like the war on drugs. The war on drugs functions by, if anyone's in the position in government, they have to pretend that the war on drugs works, even though it's perfectly obvious that it doesn't. Um, and then when they leave government, they say, oh, you know, but I always knew that, you know, it's, it's, it's a completely wrong-headed thing to do. That's essentially what Brexit is now. When someone's in position, they're not allowed to talk about it. Rishi Sunak asked about it this morning, claims that it has nothing to do with our economic problems. Uh, Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor, asked about it uh, over the weekend, claims it has nothing to do with our economic problems. And yet people leaving positions suddenly admit it. George Eustace, the Environment Secretary, when we did the deal uh, with you guys, suddenly comes out now that he's no longer in government, he goes, oh, the deal was terrible. I mean, 
putting aside to the fact the fact that this guy's professional responsibility was to represent British farmers and evidently did it anyway because he was told to, says, oh, no, actually, the deal was terrible. We got a very bad deal and you guys had us over a barrel. You get a former member of um, the Bank of England has just come out and said, well, look, Brexit is the reason we're about to have austerity because we've reduced our GDP, we've reduced our trade, we've reduced our investment. So now we need to start cutting in order to maintain any kind of spending we can get. I mean, over and over again, you see the same process. And in fact, to put a sort of full stop on it, this week, Paris, the stock market in Paris overtook London. Now, when I first started writing about Brexit 2016, this was one of those things people would say to me. It's like, there's no way that will ever happen. You know, there's just no way. It's such a powerful center for international finance in London. It, whatever else happens, it's not going to get overtaken. We've now been overtaken. So we've got this incredible position where the political class will not talk about the subject as if it's a black hole in the center of the room. And yet the impacts of it are grinding us into the earth. You uh, mentioned the NHS as one of the organisations or one of the areas which is in deep trouble and uh, it seems to be in all sorts of strife with, with you know, rumours of strikes. I mean, the staff morale in the NHS is abysmal. You know, I mean, we've got apparently one in ten positions at the moment are vacant. The demand is through the roof. I mean, the waiting list is now at 7.1 million people in England. I mean, that's 60% above where it was before the pandemic began. Uh, There used to be quite a structured governmental approach towards the NHS, towards the health service. And that was predominantly organized through the delivery unit in Downing Street. And it would focus on getting A&E, accident and emergency waiting times, down to four hours. 95% of the time, you'd be seen within four hours. We haven't hit that number for years. That kind of structured governmental approach disintegrated, predominantly after Tony Blair left, but very much after Brexit. So there is no organization around it. There's no organization, for instance, around social care. And because there's no organization around social care, you find people in the NHS who are ready to leave hospital. At the moment, there's an average of 13,600 of them who are unable to leave the hospital because we don't have the social care arrangements for them there. So it really is in a state of crisis, not just financially, but organisationally as well. Well, delays have been linked to 30,000 excess deaths involving heart disease alone. Yeah. And I mean, you look at the, I mean, you just look around Europe, you can look at graphs now. So there's there's no country in Europe where more people are failing to be seen by the health service than in the UK right now. I know that, you know, this interview is essentially me just going over like a tour of a completely broken country. But I have to say that when you're here, that is very much how it feels. You know, I mean, we have strikes on rail. You know, you see the same thing in education. There's educational strikes taking place at the moment. You see sort of public services that are breaking down. There is a real sense, a cross-party sense, and a sense that you get from left and right, people you speak to anywhere, of just the country fundamentally isn't working, that almost anything you try and do here, it's not working. And that comes down to the funding and the organisation of public services, and it's a process that's about to get worse because of that autumn statement tomorrow. Well, let's end on a, on a happy note. You've got a very good story to tell about this charming Dominic Raab. Oh, yes, what joy. The the fairies dance in the trees. Dominic Raab, I mean, easily one of the most ineffectual ministers, even in the current generation. This is a man who, when he was Brexit secretary, said he'd only just learned how important the Dover-Calais route was for trade, even though it's the main point at which, you know, Britain joins with the continent. 
Um, and as Justice Secretary, it was a complete disaster. And as Foreign Secretary, Prasad was sat on a beach on a holiday during the fall of Kabul and came home and delayed the evacuation of certain key personnel because he was asking for the tables to be reformatted so that he could read them more easily. Profoundly ineffectual. And yet the one thing he does seem to be very good at is bullying civil servants that work for him. That We've now had two weeks of allegations against him. All of them corroborated at really quite high and senior levels and by multiple sources. So this morning, he took the Harris Kiri route and decided to write to the Prime Minister to demand that they launch an independent investigation into himself so that he can clear his name. We're now going to wait and see the way that that turns out. But there is now a chance that within the opening month of being Prime Minister, two of the people that um, Rishi Sunak has put in place in senior positions are going to have to step down due to brilliant allegations. Thanks, Ian. Ian Dunn, columnist with the Eye newspaper and a regular here on the Little Wireless programme. Stream any ABC radio station live and on the go. Discover new podcasts, music and audiobooks, all free on the ABC Listen app.